is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Hurricane Ian is on the move again, smacking the coast of South Carolina right now, bringing winds and heavy rain to a state hoping it doesn't meet the same fate as Florida. Rescue groups and aid workers are combing through the wreckage and devastation left behind in Florida to assess the damage and help those in need. We are going to go to both states and go in-depth. The damage and destruction in Florida, by the way, could happen here in Southern California in the form of the big one. Are we prepared for that major quake? Russia formally takes land away from Ukraine following the referendums in the occupied regions that have been called shams. Ukraine responds by trying to get into NATO a lot quicker. We'll go in depth into what's being labeled as a major escalation in the war. We know the pandemic has taken a toll on mental health. New survey shows an alarming number of young adults in California dealing with anxiety, depression, even suicidal thoughts. And a bad bird flu outbreak has led to a turkey issue, which could have a major impact at Thanksgiving. We start, though, with rescue and relief efforts in Florida. Tom Rowan is a spokesperson for Direct Relief. He's in Florida right now, north of Orlando and near Daytona Beach. Tom, thanks for being with us. I know it's probably a really busy time for you. Uh, Can you bring us quickly up to date on what we know about uh, injuries, deaths, uh, any dollar amount yet on or at least a preliminary uh, preliminary uh, estimate on damages? Thanks so much, uh, Mike and Charles, for having me today. And, uh, you know, with Direct Relief, we have been uh, working in Florida for for many years, over a decade. And this Hurricane Ian has has just caused tremendous uh, devastation. As a Floridian, uh, just seeing the the incredible loss of – the, the coastline there on, on from the storm surge on on the western part of Florida in Fort in Fort Myers area and then you know loss of power the tremendous rainfall is affecting all parts of the of the state and having right now over a million and a half people without power is is uh, really affecting the healthcare. So give me a sense of some of the things that you're doing for people, because it probably runs a, a gamut, right? You mentioned health care issues, and then there's also just people who don't have power. They're going to need some food. And then there's people who we've seen the pictures. They have nothing left. Yeah, so Direct Relief's real focus is on providing medical relief. And we have been working, as I mentioned, you know, for, for over 15 years in the state and in providing, working with the federally qualified health centers and the free clinics and supporting their medical needs. So everything from from prescription pharmaceuticals to over-the-counter products to things in, in disasters and emergencies that would be required for them to be able to, to serve their communities. And uh, even before the hurricanes hit, in June of every year, we provide our hurricane preparedness kits that will treat up to 100 patients for three days. And we have those positioned throughout the state in 12 different uh, locations and a number of those have already been obviously opened with this being such a devastating hurricane throughout the whole state. You have a kind of interesting situation there in Florida in terms of hospitals, right? Because you have uh, so many hospitals that are along the coast. Uh, and so, in the event of a hurricane or, or flooding, even if the hospitals themselves aren't flooded, the roads, the access to and from them, I would imagine, would be impassable in many cases. Is that proving to be a problem now? I, I think, yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the roads, especially down by uh, 
Fort Myers and, and, and Port Charlotte, they're saying that the roads are impassable, you know, right now. I think that will change and get better. But, you know, a lot of the people that we serve are the are the most underserved people in the states. By definition, the federally qualified health centers are set up in marginally, uh, you know, challenged areas. And so uh, for a lot of these rural uh, patients, it, it's it's a burden and a challenge sometimes to get to to their health care just on a good day. And so you can imagine with the devastating effects of this hur- if this hurricane and how it's really kind of stopped uh, transportation from from them being able to get to the medical services that they need. You mentioned you're a Floridian. When you look out at some of the images and you get reports back about what's happened out there, is this one of those, you know, years to recover scenarios? Yeah, I think for definitely parts of the state. I think where it really uh, had the storm surge and where it hit initially in in Fort Myers and in uh, in Port Charlotte, that is going to be a long time before they recover. Um, where I am more on the eastern part of the state, on the Atlantic, yes, we we uh, did sustain a lot of damage and uh, a lot of flooding. And individual people are very much affected. And, you know, clinics that we work with and support have lost electricity, have lost their insulin, have lost their vaccines. Um, they definitely need help. And uh, and Direct Relief is working with them. And it, and it sent out over 20 shipments just this week to be able to replace a lot of that product that it, that's, you know, being lost. But that's more temporary. I think on on the western side where the Hurricane first made landfall. That is going to be a uh, number of years, I'm sure, to fully recover. Tom Rohn there, spokesperson for Direct Relief. Ian hitting land along the coast of South Carolina. It reached land as a Category 1 storm, but it's already knocked out power to some areas, caused flooding in Charleston. Anna Lynch lives in the Charleston area. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, I'm sure it's pretty stressful where you are. Give us a description of what's going on there, please. Hi. Um, yeah, so luckily we've pretty much gotten through the worst of it. We're still having some wind, but um, we had terrible wind and rain from last night to really starting up at 5 a.m., kind of kept going. Um, luckily, it was only a Category 1, so... Um, We didn't get hit too, too bad. Um, Around 2 p.m. was probably the worst. And trees down, lots of flooding in our downtown area, um, and a lot of power outage still. Yeah, what was the power situation for you like? Was it it on and off, or did you lose it for a long time? Luckily, this time around, um, it would only turn off for about like a minute and then come back on. We actually have power on right now. We're pretty lucky. Um, I'm about 20 minutes from downtown, so a little further west from the coastline. So I think we, we are usually better off with keeping our power on but um, my family in downtown in Mount Pleasant is still holding out for the power to come back on. You know I'm wondering in Florida uh, most people do not have flood insurance what about uh, you folks do you? Most people do especially in the downtown area because um, even on a it could be a Tuesday and rain for three hours and it's already flooding down there so this is nothing new for us when it comes to that so most people do um, try to get flood insurance. I know there's some different areas within the downtown area, unfortunately. Um, that's not a um, financial um, obligation that they can obtain. So 
um, you know, there's always some relief teams going over there to help um, those families in need. But luckily, uh, I think we're a little better off when it comes to that here. Yeah, you were saying, you know, downtown's prone to flooding. I'm looking at some of the pictures. It's it's halfway up the fire hydrants. I mean, if your business or, or your house or whatever doesn't have steps, like, that's in your door <laughs> right there. Exactly, yeah. Uh, pretty much with three days prior, this is nothing new for us with hurricanes. We get them so often that we... Three days prior, people are already getting their sandbags ready, and the night before, everyone's blocking their doors with tarps and sandbags and anything they can, raising furniture if they can, just to prepare. Um, But luckily this time around, I think most people were better off than past hurricanes than we've had. I mean, but uh, I'm sure you were watching what was going on in Florida. Were you sort of looking at that and going, gee, I hope nothing like that happens here? Definitely. I mean, what happened in Florida is devastating. Um, I don't I don't even remember the last time Charleston has had one that severe. Um, so it definitely gets people on higher alert. They start to take it a little more seriously. Um, but at the same time, we have so many people who have lived here for over a decade, at least, where they tend to not take it as seriously as they should because they're like, oh, it's just gonna be a little rain. It'll be fine. Um, and that's where some damage really comes in. But I think most people end up preparing over preparing and then being happy that it didn't hit as bad yeah i guess that's better than the alternative right um absolutely <laughs> is it weird in a way to be you know used to this like okay get the sandbags and okay it's one of these days we're going to hunker down and stay warm and, and figure out if we have power and then we'll just wait till the water goes away oh yeah for sure i'm i'm originally from baltimore maryland so you know we had some weather but whenever we moved to charleston it was this crazy thing that everyone was just like yeah we get hurricanes and it's very casual and, um, you know, we were, we would over prepare at the beginning for sure. Um, just because we weren't used to it. And now living here for as long as I have, it's so normal. And it's odd to me that people are like texting us from other regions. Like, are you okay? Like, oh my gosh, like, did, are your cars okay? Is the house okay? And we're like, yeah, it's all fine. And this is just normal for us. It's really bizarre. <laughs> it's very wet and minor flooding. Uh, Anna Lynch lives in the Charleston area. Anna, thanks for talking to us. Coming up, the U.S. and Ukraine respond to Russia officially taking land away from Ukraine and finding and buying a turkey. Well, it could be a challenge this Thanksgiving. We'll explain why and how you can kind of get around it. Right now, the destruction we're seeing in Florida after Ian, something that could happen here in Southern California after a major earthquake. That raises questions about our level of preparedness here for a natural disaster. Ross Stein, earthquake expert, CEO and co-founder of Tembler, which provides information about earthquakes. Ross, thanks for being here. So I guess the first thing to note is we are definitely overdue for a big one, yeah? Well, we're certainly, it's certainly in our future. You know, we really can't tell. Earthquakes can't be predicted. So it's very, very hard to know when and where it'll strike. But Southern California has lots of targets and we're all going to experience them. Well, you know, we were talking before in the earlier segments how in Florida, most people do not have flood insurance. And that's going to be a problem because a lot of people erroneously think that FEMA is going to come in and kind of rebuild their homes for them. And that's not going to happen here in Southern California. What's the situation with earthquake insurance and how much or how little help in the event of the big one can people expect from the federal government? Well, it's much the same story. About 15% of homeowners have earthquake insurance, and that's a pretty small number for a state that is exposed to such a high peril. Now, insurance isn't the only game in town. Most of us who live in homes that were not built recently can seismically retrofit them, strengthen them, so they'll be more resilient 
So we won't have as much damage and won't need as much financial wherewithal to prepare. So really, there's a two-step process here of thinking about insurance, thinking about retrofit as our first line of defense. And beyond that, all of us should have earthquake emergency kits in our homes and in our cars. I was going to say, my gift to everyone who moves to town is an earthquake kit. And then they laugh at me like, oh, thanks. That's so funny. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't think you understand. Like, you're actually going to need this if you live here long enough. Do you think people just think that they're ready? Like, oh, I've got some soup and uh, I've got some rice or something. I'll be fine. I have a bag and of some chip. water. I have chips ahoy right. in my cabinet. <laughs> this is, yeah. Get the Oreos ready yeah. and he'll ride it out. But <laughs> exactly. like, if you really go through the steps like, OK, we're talking maybe days without power. You should probably have cash because your card isn't going to work. Like, you got to really actually sit down and think about this for a minute. Yes, you do. And I think your gift is an absolutely beautiful one because it's a it's an expression of love to help the people you care about prepare for and live through an earthquake. And you're exactly right. You need food. You need water. You need a solar uh, cell so that you can charge your cell phone and you need warm clothes and you need gloves. Unfortunately, we already all have masks, so we don't have to add that to the kit. But yeah, everybody should have a kit. And here's another one that just costs a couple of dollars but makes a big difference. Put an international orange whistle on your keychain. Because if you get caught in a building that collapses, nobody is going to dig you out unless they're certain you're alive. And you can whistle for a long, long time, very loudly, and then people will know you're there. And as a side benefit, you'll never lose your keys again if you have an international orange whistle. Out. As, as you said that, my, I see Mike is writing that down. Is that something that's not in your well, kit? Well, no, I wrote the solar charger because I think oh. I've got one of those like big kind of battery pack things yeah. where you can like jumpstart a car, uh -huh. like blow up tires too. And so I can charge something for a while. But I was right. like, you know what, if, if like that, because even that needs a charge. Mm -hmm. And I probably will forget. Maybe dead. it's dead now. So I thought that solar charger was a pretty good idea. But what like about that. the whistle? Uh, yeah, I'll get a whistle too. Yeah, <laughs> you got sure. a whistle too. Well, <laughs> what about? And I, I realize you're an earthquake expert, but we we of course also have a problem with fires and and smoke. Uh, and for many many people, depending on how smoky it is and how close that smoke is to where you happen to live, that presents its own emergency, doesn't it? That's right. And of course, earthquakes have concrete dust, so they really have this in common. So a good mask like an N95 mask that we know about all too well, would be great protection in an earthquake kit and would be just as useful in a fire. But I would say that the, uh, the yin and yang here is that we have become so focused on wildfire and, of course, on hurricanes and Hurricane Ian that we've kind of willed earthquakes out of existence. And I think that people have decided or hope hope are hoping that earthquakes won't come again. But earthquakes for California are the 500-pound gorilla in the room. It is the one we really all are responsible to be prepared for. Ross Stein, earthquake expert, CEO, co-founder of Tembler, provides info about earthquakes. You know what else I've got in the kit? Yeah. Bottle of whiskey. A bottle of whiskey? Mm -hmm. Is that like for an emergency or what? Well, you know, it's going to be rough. So. <laughs> so it'll take away some of the pain? Exactly. Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. Multiple uses. 
This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russian President Vladimir Putin has now signed these treaties to annex parts of Ukraine occupied by the Russian forces. The signing came three days after the referendum on joining Russia that Ukraine and the West say are shams. NATO's chief says this decision is the most serious escalation since the war began. Back with us now is Ruslan, who was originally from Donetsk, which is one of the regions that was annexed today. He's now in western Ukraine. Thanks for coming back with us. I am glad you're still uh, well and safe. Tell us your thoughts on this latest action by Vladimir Putin to, uh, based on this really illegitimate, in the view of most of the world, uh, illegitimate referendum, to declare these regions, including where you're originally from, right, now part of Russia. There's there's really a lot of um, historical evidence to repeated attempts by Russia to create sort of a cultural and ethnical buffer zone between what they consider to be the imperialistic West and then the proud nation of Mother Russia. Um, since the founding of the region as a industrial and trading powerhouse back in 18th century, and actually even earlier than that, there was already a significant amount of uh, settlements and mining industry and trade due to the access to the Mediterranean Sea through the Black Sea, through the Sea of Azov, mainly through the port of Mariupil. Um, Russia has consistently tried to make sure that no Ukrainian culture really takes root in that region. And unfortunately, the havoc that the 20th century had 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 rocked on Ukraine and the Holodomor genocide of 1930s, it took a very heavy toll on the region. Um, there are two factors that need to be taken into consideration. The first one is that Russia, once they entered the 20th century, they still had peasantry as a socio-economic and cultural um, phenomena, even though the Western world by that time had already realized that, well, the freedom to choose where to work and in what type of labor to engage is actually conducive to growth and development. But in Russia, it wasn't like that. And so by the time that the Russian Empire collapsed during, during and due to World War I, a large number of poor Russian people moved in into the Donbass region that was predominantly occupied by that time by Ukrainians that were much wealthier than those Russians that were moving in. And so that created a great opportunity for Russia later down the line, whilst conducting genocide of Ukrainian population, to also establish a cultural foothold with Russian citizens already being there. And then the uh, terror of, of the 50s and the 60s following World War II only further exacerbated the problems. And there are statements of... Um, of Ukrainians that were moving in back yeah. into Donetsk, and they weren't covering just heinous crimes uh, following the so-called liberation of the region by the Red Army. Yeah, so they have a history of doing this. It's in the playbook. They've tried it other places, and now we're seeing it again, and obviously it's been called an escalation for all the reasons that we've covered here before. Do you still have people there, family members, friends that had to go through this? They get the knock at the door, and they're like, hey, sign here, and this is your vote. You don't have a choice. Yeah, unfortunately, I did uh, get a couple messages from my friends that uh, still reside in Donetsk, and they hold no sympathy towards Russia. 
they just have such a life circumstances that they can't leave the city for various reasons, but mostly it has to do with, you know, family and everything. And um, I've also seen plethora of videos online from friends of friends, from, you know, social circles, social media, just literally people coming into your apartment with a gun and pretty much uh, making you place your vote. And obviously that vote is, well, has only one outcome. Do you worry that this, as many people in in the U.S. worry now, that this is going to greatly escalate not only the tension but the, the potential for a much more severe and wider conflict? Because uh, Putin, of course, is now, uh, and he's already said that, that any attack in these regions like Donetsk is going to be, in his view, an attack on Russian soil, which would, in his mind, justify... Uh, the use of more severe up to and including, he's hinted several times, uh, tactical nuclear weapons. Do you think that's all a bluff or do you think that there's a serious potential for that occurring? I'm someone who's quite interested in um, in gambling as a phenomena. And there is a strategy in gambling called Martingale strategy. The basic premise of the strategy is that every time you make a bet and you lose, you need to double your next bet. And in theory, provided that you have unlimited time and unlimited capital, you eventually should recoup your losses and win. However, in reality, if you apply that principle to your actions, a streak of losses in that strategy will eventually bankrupt you. And far as I can tell, based on what I've been observing since 2014, what Russia has been doing, they've been almost maniacally following the strategy. And even when they were losing, they were escalating the bets even further. So I don't think personally that they will go as far as to actually authorize a nuclear strike, be that a strategic one or a tactical one, because the application of nuclear weapons is going to create just a devastating response for Russia from all the other countries, including those, well, pseudo-allied countries such as China or India or African countries at that. And um, so I just think it's a it's a big, big, big fat bluff. And on top of that, they also need to create the right picture for the society in Russia, because a lot of internal Russian problems are being resolved through that external conflict at the moment. Ruslan there from Western Ukraine, originally from the Donetsk region. Ruslan, thanks for talking to us again. Ukraine has responded to uh, Russia annexing those occupied regions of Ukraine by submitting an accelerated application to join NATO. The U.S. responded, too. Yeah, and America slapping sanctions on more than a thousand people and companies in Russia. U.S. also says it would uh, support any efforts by Ukraine to take the occupied territories back by force and says uh, we're not going to recognize the annexation. Dan Hamilton, non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Institution Center on the U.S. and Europe, also former State Department official. Dan, thanks for being with us. So we left the last segment with the talk about whether uh, Putin and this uh, nuclear positioning, uh, tactical or, or, or not, uh, defend the territory by any means were his words. Uh, whether that's a bluff or not, where do you come down on that? Well, he's uh, this. These are actions of a de- desperate, uh, you know, uh, man who's trying to gain as much as he can now before winter sets in to sort of uh, bluff the West, if possible, seize control of as much Ukrainian territory as he can, and then try to reinforce that with troops, even though his troops aren't even in control of the territories he annexed. 
it's very difficult to see. He has a lot of escalatory options besides nuclear weapons that he could use. And so we'll see. He is a desperate man, and uh, history tells us he usually chooses escalation over de-escalation when he's in a corner. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you should say that, because in our last segment, we were talking to somebody uh, in Ukraine who is from the uh, Donetsk region, and he was saying, from his just knowledge uh, of the history of his own country and its relationship with Russia, that whenever things were not going well for Russia, they would sort of as a gambling gambit, if you will, they would double down, double the the stakes, uh, but it doesn't really lead to anything. Do you sort of concur with that analysis? Well, I think Putin has shown that over the course of his rule, that whenever he seems to be a bit in trouble at home, he turns to repression abroad or adventurism. He's done that uh, repeatedly, not only now, but he did it in 2014 when he first invaded Ukraine and annexed the Crimean Peninsula. He did it in Georgia in 2008. Uh, he has, of course, sent troops to Syria. Uh, he's been engaged with mercenary forces all through Africa and other places he's threatened most of his neighbors. Uh, and I think that is sometimes to rile up you know, support within this country. What's changed now is that the nationalists, uh, to his right, I mean, even more you know, rabid than he is, are accusing him of mismanaging the war, caving in. And so he's, he's facing a new front at home besides the hundreds of thousands of people are headed for the borders uh, when he's called up this partial mobilization. So he's facing considerable pressure at home. Somebody brought that up yesterday, I think, when we were saying, well, is there someone who could just, you know, move Putin to the side if things continue to go badly? And, and I think most of our thought processes go to, yeah, that's great. Get rid of the guy and then stop the war. But you mentioned this other faction. I mean, what if someone takes over who wants to go even more full force in there? Yeah, the likely candidates, unfortunately, at the moment are those who would be even more rabid, uh, including his spy chief and a number of others around him part of his inner circle, uh, who are chomping at the bit and, and you know, not trying to ca urge caution on him, but to go the other way. And those are the ones in power and have the levers of power. So you don't see the opposition being, you know, in any real scenario that I see suddenly coming to power. Alex Navalny, the main opposition leaders in jail, as are some others. Uh, there aren't, you know, you see protests, but really Russian people are fleeing or they're, you know, they're not raising their heads because they fear the consequences. So you just don't see that other opposition rising across the Russian society. You know, that sort of begs uh, an interesting question, uh, doesn't it? I mean, he's not going to last forever, Putin. Uh, what does happen when he, I don't know, I, I guess he's not going to retire, but is too ill to do anything or dies? Yeah, I think I think the core issue here is he does not want to go down in history in his mind, as the ruler who, quote, lost Ukraine. Everything he says about it, you know, not a real country, part of Russia, but, you know, time memorial, it's core to the Russian founding myths and all of that. He's not going to do that. So he's not going to reconcile to the loss of Ukraine. So when people, you know, commentators say, well, how will this end? I think two other questions are more relevant. One is, how will this actually continue? Uh, even if there's a ceasefire, Russia will not reconcile, nor will Ukrainians, frankly, reconcile to what is now, uh, you know, a, a line of control cutting across their territory. And the second question will be, how far will this extend? 
because the turbulence and the disruption that's going on is not just on the land borders of Ukraine. It's extended throughout the Black Sea. Putin has weaponized, you know, people, energy, uh, you name it, cyber. All the flows that connect societies are showing there can be disrupted, and he's doing that. The latest incident in the Baltic Sea, where there's sabotage and the pipelines, uh, show how susceptible Western societies are to this type of disruptive, intentional disruptive influence. And Putin's shown that he is willing to escalate in those areas as well. So we're facing a multi-front war here that's starting to include you know, many other countries beyond Ukraine. Dan Hamilton there, non-resident senior fellow, Brookings Institutions Center on the U.S. and Europe, also former State Department official. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We've talked about the impacts of the pandemic on mental health before. New survey, though, commissioned by the California Endowment might be even more cause for concern. More than three quarters of young adults in the state report anxiety in the last year, with more than half reporting depression. And almost a third say that they have experienced suicidal thinking. 16% reported self-harm. Morgan Hanlick is the California Regional Director at Minding Your Mind, which helps people struggling with mental health issues. Morgan, thanks for being with us. Is this a result, these figures of the pandemic? Is that the most contributing factor to the mental state of all these young people here in California? You know, honestly, I think that, you know, depression and anxiety have existed I mean, always, there always been something that had been a problem, but I do think that the pandemic definitely made these symptoms come out a lot more intensely and made them a lot more damaging to the lives of young people. So is this a chance to better pay attention to this? Because to that point, you know, it's been declining for years and years, maybe how people are feeling. Um, But if you got that many people that close to the line already, this probably pushed them right over it. Absolutely. Absolutely. How much of these feelings do you think are being contributed to because of, as you know, there's quite a drug issue with things like fentanyl, for example, nationwide, but certainly here in California, too? Yeah, I mean, I think that when someone is suffering, drugs are used to escape feeling what they might have to feel if they weren't using them. And I think that given these increased rates of anxiety and depression, that's really telling that there are a lot of people suffering out there. So I think that's that's kind of a, a butterfly effect to why people are reaching towards substances to be able to cope with those difficult feelings. What are some of these young people saying? Because I think you can, you can make it to adulthood and you say, well, you know, yeah, I, I felt things were bad back then, but I had no idea until I became an adult. It's so much worse now. Um, is it just dealing with school? Is it negative thoughts because you spend a lot of time on social media? Is it really triggered by the pandemic? All that time spent alone, not great for people. Definitely. I think it's all of the above. I think that, you know, what you mentioned about spending so much time alone, I think that one's really important to look at here because loneliness is such a painful human emotion and loneliness feeds things like depression. And I think the really difficult thing about depression is that one of the major symptoms is a loss of motivation and fatigue. And a lot of the time, the things that you have to do to be able to start to feel better and recover from depression, they're hard to do if you're not feeling that motivation to be able to do so. Not all, but but I, I suspect many of these young adults are still living at home, especially with the current economic conditions being what they are. 
Uh, to what degree do the people that they live with, parents, relatives, maybe roommates, uh, and their own physicians perhaps, how much do those people need to be alert to the problems that this one particular individual, for example, might have so that if they don't recognize that there's an issue, maybe those people can call attention to it? That's really a good point there. I think everyone needs to be very alert just because I think just due to the stigma around mental health, it's so easy for it to fall between the cracks. And if someone does come out and say something, I think a lot of the time it can be dismissed or not taken as seriously as it actually is. If, you know, someone broke their leg, we wouldn't wait months or years to actually you know, give that the time, attention and care it needs. But with mental illness, that's something that is really common to do. So I think that us all being incredibly aware just so at least one of us can can see it and do something to be proactive about it is so important. What about access to somebody you can talk to? I remember, you know, at high school, there were counselors, but everybody saw the counselors as people who would just kind of look at your transcripts and make sure you took all the right classes to get to college. We didn't actually see them as like counselors or even therapists. Um, how do you get, you know, to that point where you can actually notice and say, hey, well, let's let's get you to talk to this person over here. Yeah, I think when it comes to young people, finding a trusted adult that can help connect them to those resources is so important. And also, if, you know, they find that adult and say that adult doesn't have the resources, to never stop trying because there is someone out there that wants to help and cares. And I think that we're evolving so much when it comes to mental health resources in schools and that it's becoming such a prevalent thing that we're all paying more attention to. So the resources are also growing. You know, one of the things that you do tend to hear a lot when somebody in a household, for example, uh, uh, is a suicide, uh, the people around them sometimes will say, well, we, we kind of thought that maybe they were thinking of that, but we didn't want to bring it up because we thought that it would sort of put the notion in that person's mind so we kept quiet. But it's not true, is it, that if you bring it to someone's attention, that that in and of itself is going to drive them to take their own lives? Absolutely not true. I think that's one of the biggest myths about suicide is that talking about it is going to put that idea in someone's head. I think we should be talking about it and creating this conversation because suicide is a very real thing that a lot of people are are suffering from and loved ones are seeing the effects of. So I think it's a conversation we do need to be having and it will not put that plant that seed in their head at all. Morgan Hanalek, California Regional Director at Minding Your Mind. Okay, let's uh, let's do a little uh, mental exercise here, okay? Mm. So uh, imagine Thanksgiving dinner, all right? Yes. You got the turkey, uh-huh. okay, the stuffing. Mm-hmm. That's uh, my what, favorite part. What kind of stuffing do you like? The, the stovetop and the box. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> uh, gravy, uh-huh. potatoes, cranberries. No, those are the dishes for the holiday. But what if there wasn't a turkey? What then? Well, that sounds terrible. Yeah, uh, turkeys could be in short supply coming up. Bird flu has killed six million recently, lowering supplies, raising prices uh, to the highest levels ever. But if you can't find a turkey or afford one just before the holiday, what do you do? With us is Brian Fowler, Vice President of Procurement and Product Development at Omaha Steaks. Uh, Brian, thanks for being here. Is this where you tell me that I need, need to buy a steak? <laughs> hey guys, thanks for having me on today. I'll always tell you to buy steak. <laughs> But I appreciate you having me on to talk about one of my all-time favorite topics, meat. So let's talk about Thanksgiving and what that looks like this year. You know, it, it really is, to your point, uh, we've seen uh, a number of uh, turkeys depopulated, 6 million you just mentioned, that would otherwise be landing on our tables this November. 
Couple that with the low level of turkeys in cold storage and declining production, which is estimated to be down about 3 to 10% in the third and fourth quarters, there are going to be fewer turkeys available for consumers this holiday. And it also means that the turkeys that are available are going to be more expensive than in previous years. You can expect to pay upwards of 20% more than last year. So what are alternatives? I mean, okay, I get it, Omaha steaks, steaks, but you can't stuff a steak, can you? Oh, you can absolutely stuff a steak. You just got to think big. <laughs> you know, okay. We've worked, with our, we've worked with our suppliers to build supply for our Thanksgiving turkeys. We've got an eight-pound whole smoked turkey, a 10-pound oven roasted turkey, and a three-pound turkey roulade wrapped in handmade pastry, stuffed with bread and cherries and sage. But if you want to think beyond just the turkey, consumers tell us that they also want ham. In fact, 38% of Americans say that they would have ham as their backup for it. And we also think that something like a prime rib is a great option. Really think about a new holiday tradition, right? It doesn't have to be the same old, same old. The important thing is that you're with your friends and your family and your loved ones, and you're starting a new Thanksgiving tradition together. So if you like do turkey for Thanksgiving and ham for Christmas, move the Christmas ham to Thanksgiving and then like do a roast for Christmas. Change it up this year. Absolutely. Or you know what? Think about more than one protein. You know, more than a third of American households have more than one protein on Thanksgiving. The most popular options are turkey and ham. We actually at our house have three every year, turkey, ham, and prime rib, because I'm not having a holiday without beef. <laughs> Wait, would, you get, would you get fired if you didn't have they beef? Check. They show, no, me the, show me the picture absolutely. of the table. That's yeah. actually one of the job requirements. Uh, we're not allowed to go a day without eating beef. <laughs> All right. So so ham is an option uh, if you can't find a turkey or you can't find one that you can afford. Uh, ham is an option. Actually, let's talk about cost, uh, come to think of it. So, I mean, is is getting a ham instead of a turkey really that much of a cost savings? It is. You know, it is actually significantly more economical. And in some cases, a beef roast will be, too. It's all going to depend, I think, on when you shop and if you're able to find it. You know, my advice for for consumers this year is really threefold. One, shop early for the best selection. If you wait until the last minute, you may find yourself out of luck and there's no need to add more stress to the holidays. So plan and buy sooner. The second thing is consider that new holiday tradition like we just talked about. Think about what you want to do most and that's really getting together with your loved ones. Whether you do that with a ham, a prime rib or a turkey, it doesn't really matter, but you're with them. And my third piece of advice, I think, is to just enjoy that time with your loved ones. Life is hard. Thanksgiving dinner shouldn't be. So whether you're gathering around with a big juicy turkey, a, a salty sweet ham, or a big flavorful tender prime rib, just remember the reason for being together. And, you know, our mission at Omaha Steaks is bringing people together, and that's the beauty of food. It does just that. So I say have a toast, break bread, and be thankful for all you've got. When we get shortages like this, is it across the board or is it like, okay, the one that you were going to go grab off the shelf there in the in the section of the grocery store, like those are affected. But, you know, if you get the meal box from like Marie Callender's or whatever and they, they do it all for you, do they actually get hit by this too? Or is it is it just like grocery stores? You're doing your own. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you're going to actually see everyone sort of getting hit with it. One of America's largest turkey brands came out earlier this summer and revised their earnings forecast downwards, saying that they were expecting about a 30% reduction in turkey supply. Another big turkey uh, brand out there said, actually, they're not going to have much of a, uh, uh, of a hit to supply. So it really depends, but I think you're going to see it really across the board. That's why we delivered our turkeys early. We leveraged the advantage of frozen. They're in our freezers ready to go so that you can order and have them and on your table for Thanksgiving if that's what you want. But if you don't and you can't find one, you can always go to the alternatives of a great ham or a prime rib.
If you're creative, can you carve a, a roast to make it look like a turkey? Oh, sure can. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I'm no meat artist, but I'm confident you could do it if you've got the skills. You don't like the, the tofurkey over there? No. Charles. No, I've tried it. Yeah. No, it does not taste like turkey. Okay, Brian, have you had a tofu turkey? I, I have. And, How'd uh, that go for you? The, it's sort of the Voldemort of the <laughs> You're not going to talk about it, yeah. Everyone yeah. in the office knows Yeah, not to say the name. Yeah, you know, I, I, I draw the line at a certain point, and it's it's on fake meat. So, you know, for me, it's gather around with that turkey, that ham, that prime rib, that beef tenderloin. No matter what, just enjoy being together. Do Even you think, God though, forbid, that there's going to be like a Beyond Turkey someday? I don't think they have one yet, do they? They don't have one yet. Uh, and, and, you know, never say never. I can't speak to certainly what they're going to do. But, you know, there's a customer for everything out there. <laughs> it's very diplomatic. It's very Thank you. That was the nicest thing I could come up with. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. All right. Brian Fowler there, VP of uh, Procurement and Product Development at Omaha Steaks. Well, Did you get your answers? I think we've solved everybody's Thanksgiving potential dilemma. You've got options. You have options. Yeah. All right. There you go. That's our gift to you for Friday. That's in-depth for the week.